Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, how will new gas and oil production affect America's military and geostrategic role abroad? And we are joined today by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Walter Russell Mead, distinguished scholar in American strategy and statesmanship at the Hudson Institute, professor of foreign affairs and humanities at Bard College, and editor-at-large of the American Interests. Walter, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. Okay, so let's start with the economic side of this. One of the points that you make in your essay for Strategica is that, yes, it's significant that you have all these new resources coming online in a way that can reduce prices. But the fact that they're coming from the United States, from a stable country, is also significant. Explain that. Well, that's right. If you think about oil markets for the last 20 or 30 years – um, with the world's energy supply in perhaps the most unstable region in the world, the Middle East, um, we've had all kinds of geopolitical impacts on the energy price. And a crisis in the Middle East has had the ability to drive prices up. Uh, fortunately today with the U.S. supplies, even though the Middle East is in more trouble than ever, we're actually seeing stable and falling prices. And the, the flip side of the argument that gets made about the economic benefits for the United States is that, hey, energy is cheaper for us. Great. But that means it's also cheaper for China, which as we know has this incredible industrial appetite at the moment. So the argument goes, don't be too sanguine about this because if anything, it just makes Beijing more muscular on the world stage. Should our listeners be concerned about that dynamic? Well, it's certainly, you know, China benefits from low energy prices. On the other hand, so does Japan. Uh, so does Europe. Uh, if you think that, that what America's goal is, is to have a healthy international economic system in which a number of countries in a number of parts of the world are rapidly growing and prospering, a lower energy pr uh, price, all other things equals, tends to support that. It's also the case that China's dependence on imported energy is a huge vulnerability in time of war. If, as long as China depends on oil that's coming from the Middle East and, in fact, from Central America and perhaps one day North America, uh, in, in case, God forbid, there were some kind of confrontation between the United States and China, uh, control over their energy supply would be a very, very powerful card to play. Walter, oil and gas are fungible. There's a global market. So if the prices go down, they basically go down for everyone. Yet you say at Strategica that – I'm quoting you here – the United States will do better out of the energy revolution than many others. Why is that? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. One obviously is that if you are producing a lot of these uh, new supplies, you, you get a benefit uh, that others don't. You're producing as well as consuming. But also um, – uh, just because of the way natural gas works, a lot of our new energy is available in the form of natural gas. If you're going to export natural gas, you certainly can. It's just very expensive to liquefy it, ship it across the ocean, and then yet again put it in a form in which it can be used. So that means that even in a world of fungible energy and prices, we are likely to see lower energy prices in the United States than in Europe or Japan and some other countries actually for quite a long time. 
And if that's the case, then some energy-intensive manufacturing operations are going to find it uh, uh, a sensible thing to do to locate here rather than elsewhere. So on that front, on the economic dynamics, beyond the cost of energy itself, beyond the job prospects that come from new production, well, what about the implications for the, for the federal government? That is, d- does it change the picture in terms of the budget or in terms of the, the dollar's value? What do you envision there? Again, all, all other things being equal, it means that over time uh, the U.S. is going to have a brighter budget picture than we would otherwise. I mean obviously we could – you know, if we thought we had a little bit more revenue coming in, we could raise our spending and so we could lose that, that, that advantage. But as long as we uh, hold spending no higher than it is now, <coughs> the fact that on the one hand the government is going to be getting tax receipts from – new oil supplies, and the other that the uh, intensified economic activity both here and abroad is going to increase profits, is going to increase incomes, and government can, uh, can tax, will tax that. Um, also means that in general, all things being equal, unemployment is going to be lower, reducing government costs. So net, this is a strong positive signal for the U.S. budget. It is also a strong positive signal for the dollar, which may have other consequences on the economy, not all of them good. What are some of the negative consequences that could come from that? Well, it would mean that it would be harder for the U.S. to compete in some export markets. If the dollar is high uh, relative to the euro or the yen, uh, it means that American goods would be more expensive in Europe uh, or Japan. It would also mean that foreign earnings of American corporations uh, in those currencies wouldn't be worth as much when measured in dollars. There's another interesting angle that you touch on at Strategica, which is that you think that big advancements in energy may actually change how America is perceived abroad. Explain what you mean by that. Well, this is this really comes from experience. I spend a lot of time traveling around the world talking to people in various countries about American foreign policy, future of American strength, and so on. And what you see when you do this is that people in other countries are tremendously impressed when they begin to process the consequences of the energy revolution for American strength long term. Um, uh, There's a historical uh, reason for that as well, in that a lot of American dominance in the late 19th, early 20th century reflected the fact that globally the first energy revolution of oil uh, started in the United States and American companies were exploiting these resources and mastering the technology of oil before other countries were. And a lot of the talk that you heard in the last 30 or 40 years about American decline and so on was, was linked in all kinds of ways to perceptions that the U.S. had already had peak oil, the U.S. was seen as needing to import more oil, which would make our economy weaker and also uh, tie us down in a security way in other parts of the world. So I, I think this, uh, this shift in our outlook really has cha- begun to change and will continue to change the way other people look at us. What ramifications will the changes in the underlying economic dynamics have? And here's what I mean by that. The dominant players in oil right now, most of them, 
um, or many anyway, have an enormous amount of state power behind them. We're talking primarily about these Middle Eastern petro-states that operate under the umbrella of OPEC or even a country like Venezuela, whereas the energy development that we're seeing in North America comes out of a much more sort of market-driven process. Does that upend some of the dynamics that we're used to in energy markets? It's hard to say now how it will all play out, but I think uh, it does. Uh, I think it – for one thing, it turns out that for these unconventional energy sources, it's actually important to have a large group of small companies active in the energy field that a lot of the technological breakthroughs and discoveries have come in the U.S. because we have a a culture of wildcatting of small companies trying innovative things Um, and state-owned firms like Pemex in Mexico, even though they know that there is potential in Mexican geology for some of these unconventional resources haven't been able to exploit them as quickly as we have. That's going to have an impact in that we're likely to see, we have seen in Mexico already, a beginning of an opening of the energy sector. I think we'll see it in other places as well, that the this new kind of geology, new kind of extraction may in fact favor private rather than public, large public firms. You also have the problem in pricing of of something like OPEC, where um, uh, you know it's seen as a cartel of a small number of large, mostly state-owned producers acting in concert. If oil production is diversified among more and more private firms in more and more countries, it's actually going to be harder for any cartel to set the price. It's probably a good thing. So what about here at home? We've been engaged in a fight over the Keystone Pipeline for several years now. It seems fair to say that the two major parties take pretty different approaches to energy issues. Going forward, do you think that the domestic political hostility towards conventional energy production in some quarters is going to be an effective block on some of these innovations or are those voices just sort of fighting a rear guard that's that's doomed to fail? Well, look, I think, um, you know, you can ima- think of this, the possibilities. You could go anywhere from regulations so tight that we never drill for anything and then a climate that's so permissive that anything goes. Um, right. You know, the United States is not going to end up at either of those extremes. It's going to end up in some middle zone and the exact shape of that or, or location of that is going to be driven by politics. And you'll probably get different answers in different places. Right now, the state where I live, New York State, bans fracking. Other nearby states permit it under different regulatory assumptions. Uh, So I think what you're going to have is perhaps 50 different approaches and then 51 if you include federal lands. That's the way the American system worked with old oil where, again, the regulations are not identical in every state. My guess is we'll see even more of that with these new sources. So final question for you and one that we're actually putting to all of the authors in this issue. What does this mean for America's role abroad, especially as regards the Middle East? Because a lot of times uh, American energy production is touted on the grounds that, hey, if we if we produce it here, we can get out of all of that messy Middle East business and just wash our hands of it. Is that a, a realistic outcome? Well, I could wish that it was, but, but I, don't, <laughs> I don't think it is because, you know, imagine, okay, suppose the U.S. 
were 100% self-sufficient. We weren't importing oil from anywhere, but Europe was, Japan was, China was. And now suppose something happens in the Middle East and the oil flow from the Middle East is blocked as a result of some kind of war or something else. Um, what you see is the price of oil jumps all over the world. It would certainly go up here to the degree that oil is fungible. But much more important than that, you'd see a collapse of the Japanese economy, the Chinese economy, the European economies. Uh, what does that do to American corporations that have large investments there? What does that do to American banks who've made huge loans and are heavily involved in the financial lives? What does that do to the stock market? What does that do to the bond market? The answer is it creates a massive financial catastrophe in the United States. So just because we've never been that dependent on physical oil from the Middle East, um, our our dependency is always primarily through our connection to the international economic system that Middle East oil is a vital part of. That connection is not going to change. All right. Our guest has been Walter Russell Mead, Distinguished Scholar in American Strategy and Statesmanship at the Hudson Institute, Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College, Editor-at-Large of the American Interest as well as a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.